Welcome to the first edition of Drumversations, the podcast. I am Ruth Lomax. And I'm Mark Lomax. And we just want to welcome you to um, what we're doing here. So, Mark, what are we doing here? (laughs) Mark, if you could just kind of. What are we actually doing here? (laughs) (laughs) You're just like, what are we doing here? Let's tell the people what we're doing here. (laughs) Okay. Wow. Okay. So, for the last. I'd say, gosh, we've been in quarantine for, what, two months? At least. All right. So for the past two months, every Friday, uh, noon to one o'clock, you have been hosting what's called Drumversations. And um, if you could just tell folks what Drumversations is all about and why we have now taken that format and brought it into the podcast format. So thank you, Ruth. You're welcome, Mark. <laughs> Drumversations is a title of not just our weekly series, but an album that I put out in partnership with about f- with five poets a few years ago um, that really brought the drum set and poetry in conversation with each other based on my concept uh, derived from the African talking drum. So instead of just talking drum, which I thought was kind of, Passe, boring. Drumversation seemed to be better title, and uh, it was apropos for these weekly mm. conversations because I wanted to use the drum set as a vehicle for conversations about how we can grow and become, even in the midst of a pandemic, sharing some love and light in some dark times. How's it been going for you? It's been going great, aside from a few technical issues. <laughs> Uh, Yeah, technical issues have been fun. So I think just kind of backtracking from what Drumversations has been, who are who are you and who who are are we? Who are we? And why? Question. That is the existential question. Well, we know that you're Ruth. Absolutely. And we know that I'm Mark. Yep. But what does that really mean? So, uh, yeah, I'm going to ask you to kind of go first and I'll just chime in. Really? Yeah, because I think people want to hear more from you. You're going to chime in on who I am? Nope. (laughs) Unless I hear something I don't agree with. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) So it started back in the Appalachian Hills of Blacksburg, Virginia. (laughs) Virginia Tech. (laughs) No. Ironically. (laughs) I'm a bro Billy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm Dr. Mark Lomax. I am a musician, composer, college professor, work in philanthropy, husband, father, son, friend, and a black man. Tech geek as well. Tech geek. Yeah. Yeah. And who are you? <laughs> who you eels? Oh, well. So um, I'm Ruth. Uh, you Ruth faith- who? Faithful friend in Hebrew. I am the wife. I'm getting verklempt. <laughs> I'm the wife of Dr. Mark Lomax. Um, I'm the husband of. (laughs) Yeah. And I say that because it's so funny. People are always like, oh, my gosh, you're married to Mark Lomax. You're so lucky. (laughs) But guess what, folks? I have my own life, too. So um, I thought you were going to say, well, he's married to me. Nah. (laughs) I'm not. (laughs) I mean, yeah, obviously. Um, But no, (laughs) I am. You know, I do some things in the city, and I'm a mama, um, momager. I am happy to help out 
um, with this project. Um, I think that I obviously, I don't always believe in everything my husband does, but this I do. (laughs) That is absolutely correct. (laughs) So no, that's, that's cool. Um, so you know, you talked a little bit about drum versations being kind of the impetus of this podcast in particular. But what else do you want to say? Like, we are living in maybe one of the biggest shit shows we've ever seen in our Wait, lives. Does that mean America's a shithole country? <laughs> yeah, if it's not just shithole, Haiti. It's not just... This must be a shithole country. I mean, I don't know if I would say that. Oh, my God. <laughs> I just had a revelation. <laughs> so yeah, if anybody wants to like uh check us on some of this stuff, feel free to. <laughs> no, don't. We don't care. We're expressing our views and opinions. That is the beauty of a podcast. That is why we're doing it. That's the why. That is the why. And I think what's funny about this is because Mark and I have such interesting conversations on a regular. Um and like I said, folks really want to hear from Mark right now. Um, but they only listen to you. They do listen to me, and it's really weird. But so what we thought is <laughs> we would join forces. My husband is Super a huge. Twin powers. Yeah, I was just, I was getting there, Mark. You're a huge like a comic book superhero, fantasy. Well, I guess sci-fi, sci-fi geek, maybe yeah. I could say I'm a blurred. Um, in the in the best possible way. I use geek as a term of endearment. I really do. It's the age of the geek. <laughs> the geeks are rising up. Geeks arise. Clearly, Unite. clearly. And we need more of it, clearly, because people have been blowing you up for the past 24 hours. And so what do you have to kind of say about that? Like I said, um, we're certainly kind of bringing some levity to the conversation today because this has been this has been a rough 48 hours 72 hours i mean rough 400 years oh okay plug shout out to the (laughs) 400 year project i mean but it's been rough um and so i just wanted to get you to kind of talk about um, how drumversations, how your creative work, how your social political activism um, is all kind of working in concert, no pun intended. Um, but how are we how are we kind of taking that to this stage and, and what do we hope to do with that? So running a podcast from your basement is a different stage. It is a different stage. Have you huh. stages in the age of covid? I mean, but it is what it is. It is keeping it's keeping you creatively occupied. I guess so. It is. It, and if you're creatively occupied, then it makes my life a whole lot easier. Well, Let's just go. keep it a hundred. Idle minds and all. <laughs> um, so, yeah, well, you know, to answer your question as indirectly as possible, um, I, I just think that one of the things that is my role as not just a musician and academic type or blurred, um, but as a, a modern griot or jolly in which the Which is what? Which is what? What is a jolly or? A jolly. <laughs> I was trying to combine griot and jolly I, yeah, together. A grolly. A grolly. Whatever. <laughs> so griot is the French term for the African storytellers of West Africa. 
um, Jali or Jalia. They are professional musicians. They are keepers of the culture. They are the people uh, in traditional society who historically not only kept the culture through song, dance, and um, literal histories of various families in the, the clan, as it were, but they were able to, because of that knowledge, adjudicate and, and kind of help uh, provide some consistency and ma'at or balance when there were disagreements. So it's one of those things where um, I, you would be called to sing the praises of the leader or, or sing the praises of a successful hunt or uh, sing and perform at ceremonies, uh, be they funeral rites or birth rites or what have you. But if there was a dispute, you know, you had enough information of those family histories that were in dispute to say, okay, here's what's going on now, but in this context of the history, you know, this is what happened five generations ago, therefore to make this uh, fair in a cosmic way, way, like just, right? This is what needs to happen now. So it wasn't necessarily about right or wrong. It was about what brought balance to the community uh, based on historical context, which is why even in the 400, we always talk about understanding history, the past, to give context to the present that allows us to solve problems for the future. So how does that relate to today? And do you feel like you bring balance? I bring balance to the fools. No. <laughs> I feel like the world is so out of balance that um, I don't think that people like me, creatives like me, um, have the luxury of having a whole lot of balance in their artistic output. Um, I say luxury because there's so much other music, so many other artists out there singing about parties and having fun and things that are important, but they don't have that other side, right? In the mainstream, you don't hear the political, you don't hear the spiritual, you don't hear the culturally relevant stuff. You hear the stuff that's distracting, right? There, there are books and, and ideals around how you know, we can dance ourselves to death or we can party ourselves to death because we're not actually focused on the things that keep us alive and thriving as Africans in an oppressive American situation. So not all of my work is about that, but I feel like it's really difficult to produce work about other things when there's so much of an imbalance mm -hmm. in the marketplace, right? Um, but my work is about identity, authenticity, and power, which is life period, which is, again, inclusive of all of those things. But you talk about balance. I feel like we have to err on the side of the political and the spiritual to bring balance to what people can easily access in other ways. Yeah. So, I mean, again, just thinking about what's happened in the past two months with, um, you know, COVID-19, we were, we were in, you know, the shelter in place, um, then there started to be kind of folks feeling like they were ready to get out and, you know, they were angry. People were losing their jobs. People, you can't keep me from spending my money. <laughs> um, and then, you know, can't keep me from my job. Right. I mean, and that that's real because a lot of people felt like. I don't really think this is a real thing. I think this is manufactured. And I'm ready to I don't get back want to welfare. Work. Right. The government shouldn't be able to take care of me. Well, not that it would, but if it did, we wouldn't be so worried about getting back because we would 
be comfortable enough to shelter in place and keep ourselves healthy. And just chill. And, and see, just chill. Uh, but look at what's happened in a lot of our major U.S. cities within the past 24 hours. Yeah. I mean, so talk a little bit about how you feel. And uh, for those of you that don't know, Mark and I live in the capital of Ohio, which is Columbus. Um, (laughs) It is situated in what most people know as the Midwest. I choose to call it the West East, (laughs) the Great Lakes (laughs) region. I don't feel like Ohio is really Midwestern, but that's a that that's something else. Western. That's something that we will kind of talk about some other time. Um, but I really want to hear from you. Uh, how do you feel about what's going on and how do you feel about your position as an artist, as a griot, as um, someone that folks are looking to for direction? Oh, it's, it's, it's difficult, period. I mean, you got to think. To your point, we have been living through this global pandemic since really February, March. And murder hornets. And murder hornets and everything And else. floods. And, you know, and cra- crazy weather, crises, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then over the last several weeks, um, February 23rd, Ahmaud Arbery, we don't hear about that until March. Um then we have Breonna Taylor, the police, you know, break into her home and shoot her while she's sleeping and she's dead. And her boyfriend shoots back because he feels like somebody's breaking in the house and they arrest him as if he did something wrong in a uh, open carry, right to carry state. Mm. And he's later released. But the trauma of trying to protect your family and being accused of doing something wrong when the police were wrong and you're still arrested and then you're released. And when you're released, you still have to deal with the loss of your yeah. partner. Right. In the in the context, in the of, context COVID. of a global <laughs> pandemic, yeah. you know, and then we see more videos of people like George Floyd who are just killed straight out. That That's that's murder. Yeah. Right. And a lot of folks are asking for context they're asking for explanation of why this continues to happen and what do we do to move forward and what's interesting i mean the context specific to black america is slavery is jim crow is lynching is all of those things that we know of but when you look at the numbers uh, you know it's interesting that more white people are killed by police every year because statistically there are still more white people in the country at least for the next few years but in the context of all of that stuff, slavery, Jim Crow, um, black codes, uh, lynchings, uh, civil rights, to see the, the public execution of black bodies, male, female, children, uh, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, how you identify, mm-hmm. what your socioeconomic status is, what your educational level is, as we saw with Mr. Cooper, who was the bird watcher, yeah. Harvard grad, right? Um, we still are subjected to this treatment and um, it is displayed yeah, it's, in public. It's, it's, right? it's in public now. Yeah. And it's not like these other folks in America of different ethnic backgrounds don't, ex- don't engage or aren't engaged by police. They're, they're also killed by police. But disproportionately, these things are happening to us. 
right? So I want to honor the fact that everybody has a problem with the police on some level or another, regardless of how you look, right? The police kill people. But because things happen to us historically in a disproportionate fashion, it's exacerbating the the extent inequalities, right? Um, economic inequality, inequitable access to education, social determinants of health, all of these things, plus the continued trauma of seeing ourselves be shot and beat in the streets by people who supposedly are supposed to protect and serve, but they're really still occupying that overseer position Mm -hmm. from the slavery times. Slavery, like holdover, carryovers. Absolutely. So how then, Dr. Lomax, do you um, answer the question, are all police bad? Oh, I answer it very simply. In my purview, from my personal experience, I think yes. A more objective view, though, would say no. Not all police are bad. I mean, obviously, no no institution, no culture, no ethnic group is a monolith, right? Right. But they're the ones with the badges. They're the ones with the guns. And their limited immunity is abused regularly, right? So if you're a good cop, why aren't you calling out your fellow cops? Well, we know why they're not calling out their fellow cops. Because the culture of policing, and the research shows this, um, procedural justice, you can, you can look up all kinds of stuff, right. uh, suggests that if that one good cop, and, and I do mean one, if, if you're thinking about ratios, maybe it's one out of ten, it's, it's few. Good cops call out their, their fellow officers in ways that make them look bad. When it's time for those officers to protect them, they may not be there. Mm. So just like in Jim Crow segregation or in today's corporate America, if you are of African descent or a person of color in general and you become a whistleblower, Mm. not only is your economic security based on your job in jeopardy, your life could also be in jeopardy. So there are a lot of reasons why folks don't call out. And they don't have to necessarily be black. It could be a white cop. It could be an Asian cop, Hispanic cop. It doesn't matter. If you say something hey, that's not cool, and you turn them in or you make public comments, when it's your turn to need backup because you're doing your job, those folks might choose not to be there. And so it's, it's, it's not even nuanced. I mean, that's mm-hmm. just what it is. Right. And so it's complicated. It is. It's, a, it's I, I don't know, as you were talking, it, it just reminds me of like soldiers that are kind of um, – soldiering like i don't i don't really soldier soldiering i don't really know how to describe it but it feels like military presence um in our own space like i feel like we live kind of in a militarized. militarized zone yeah yeah um right now and i mean we've always as black folks i think we always kind of feel that way i'm pretty sure um you and i both we can talk about situations when we were children um when we were young adults and even you know now where we have definitely felt like we were we were being like uh targeted um well today's may 30th to your point and the new york times is reporting 
that the army was told to ready military police units for possible deployment to Minneapolis. Yeah, I was actually just reading um, something local here and they were saying that, well, so right now our city is... um, our city has just issued like a state of emergency. Uh, There's a lockdown for, a, a for lockdown areas of for, downtown. And it's not called like a state of emergency. It's called like a, I don't know what it's called. It's called a lockdown. What it is is crazy. <laughs> yeah, like I can't even intellectually like talk about it. It's just, it's raw right now. It's raw, um, but here's the thing. Like like I said a couple of days ago, you know, people are always asking, why, 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 why the riot, why the protest? On one side and on the other side, they're like, why, 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 why do you keep killing us? Yeah. Why do you keep treating us like we're not human? And you see all of these arguments going past each other. Right. And my thing is the reason why you see the protests and what you consider riots is because we see and we feel the violence and the brutality that state sanctioned. And when we try to peacefully protest Colin Kaepernick, we lose our jobs. Right. When we try to peacefully protest Martin Luther King, we get assassinated. When we try to peacefully protest Malcolm X, we get assassinated. Right. When we try to peacefully protest Medgar Evers, we get assassinated. And I use those three men in particular because they served in the context of three completely different organizations. Mm -hmm. Right. And the SCLC, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, Martin Luther King, they were all about nonviolent protests. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And it was driven by women and Bayard Rustin, who identified as as gay. He ran that whole thing with an army of women and King was the face and he's the one who died. And they didn't pick up not one gun. Right. Malcolm X, more militant on the surface, working with the um, Nation of Islam. They did not take up arms against anybody either. But they weren't against it. Same outcome. Medgar Evers worked for the NAACP, which is a a civil rights organization that was created by white folk and black folk. And you would think that coalition, that racial coalition, Mm -hmm. so to speak, right, would have provided some cover. No, it doesn't matter. It doesn't. And then you have women like Fannie Lou Hamer, Ella Baker, um, um, uh, Angela Davis, all these folks who are speaking up and still maybe not being shot and killed, but are being negatively impacted, whether it's character assassination, economic assassination, what have you. And all, they're not they're not rioting. Right. So when people say, why riot? We say, why not riot? Because you don't hear us when we're just talking. When we're trying to have that conversation, because the conversation doesn't make you white America feel comfortable because you white America don't want to feel accountable for what you maybe not you, but your cousins are doing. So that brings Go get me, your cousins. That, that brings me to um, kind of my next question for you. What do we say to white folks that are out there changing, you know, their profile picture to say Black Lives Matter and, you know, folks who are sick and folks who are just like, I, I don't know what to do. You know, what do we say to those folks? Um, well, and, for, and full disclosure, I mean, Mark and I, we have, friends. we have a very cool. eclectic group of friends that we love and care about. How do we help those folks? Well, I think the first place to start with is the white folks who are out there marching and tearing stuff up. Stop. 
That's yeah, not helpful. Stop. It's it's making it's and making in some it cases, really bad for us. You think you might be doing that? I'm I'm benefit of the doubt. Right. right you think right. you might be doing that in solidarity, but it makes things worse for us. Absolutely. Right? And I and you know property is property. We have friends who have had property damage as yes. a result of these protests, and and you know we understand that, and we even more than understand that appreciate their perspective in understanding why this stuff is happening, right? But if you're if you want to be an ally, be an ally. Use your privilege, use your access, use your status if you have it, uh, politically, economically, otherwise, to engage systems of oppression on the behalf of people whose voices don't get into those conversations, right? So if you have the time, write letters to your politicians. Make phone calls to your politicians as a way to engage politically. I don't trust American anything to change just because, but if you happen to be able to donate to campaigns, withhold donations until you hear what needs to be heard based on your conversations with the people you are in alliance with to create the change that we all want to see more equitable, just society. Right. If these folks aren't doing it, let's get them out. But voting is only a part of it. Contacting our politicians and, and, and elected officials is only a part of it. Right. If a capitalist society thrives on exchange of goods. Right. Then we need to stop that, too. So if there are organizations, and I know this is difficult, but we need to be organized enough to just not buy stuff. Right. If we stop buying things for a certain period of time, then that drives things home, too. I mean, it worked. It was part of the civil rights movement in terms of the bus boycott. And you see what happens. I mean, there are all kind of strategies, things we can do. But the main thing is, as Stokely Carmichael says, it's it's. He was Kwame Ture at this time. He said, it's, it's all right to rise up in, in righteous indignation. What creates change, though, is sustained engagement. So you don't think a July 7th blackout will do much? Not once. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not against the idea. I'm not against the, the riot and I'm not against the protest. But what I am against is the one-off. Yeah. Well, and I think... I, not to cut you off, but you cut to cut off, you baby. off for a second. Um, I just wonder, and, and I would love to hear your thought about this. You know, Americans are kind of like uh, folks that catch on to something while it's like hot and trendy. So right now to be, to be, a you know, engaged in this conversation as hot and trendy right now. And then in about two weeks, we're not going to hear about this again. Right. Well, we're, we're not going to hear about this, but we'll hear about the next thing. Right. So how do we can create like that sustained um, engagement around this. And so, because honestly, I think you had said this yesterday, had we have been doing this stuff before we wouldn't be in this place now. Right. And so kind of speak about that a little bit. Well, I mean, King says in one of his last speeches, if not his last speech, that there are five things that we can do five things that will, if, if we sustain them, really get us to a place where we are working together to create change. And the first thing is unite. We need to unite around the fact that people in America are not treated like human beings. Right. And it begs the question, what does it mean to be American? Yeah, we would be more pissed off about a dog. 
we literally were pissed off more about how Amy Cooper treated her dog, we being America, than how she treated this man who happened to be a person of color that she had a problem with. She literally weaponized the police against him. And the outcome could have been so much worse uh, if he was not who he was. And I'm not saying that to to invoke respectability politics because I don't agree with that. I don't ascribe to that. But had he been less mature even, you know, as we've seen some other videos of young men being harassed by the police and they feel violated because that's exactly what's happening and they don't have the level of maturity to handle a situation in a way that might get them out of that alive. But we know it doesn't even matter, right? Because you can handle the situation in a way that is mature, George Floyd, and still die. So again, for people who are like, don't riot, don't, that's not the way. Well, when you're acting civil, quote unquote, in an uncivil situation, you still can die. So, you know, there's that. But, and that's the context we're working with, which is why I think it takes a broad coalition of folks and sustained engagement to get this done. So back to King, we already have organizations that are doing work. Mm-hmm. There are grassroots organizations that are affiliated with, or, with ideas like Black Lives Matter and are not. Right. We don't have to have everybody on the same page doing the same thing. Right. But what we do have to have people uh, understanding is that the outcomes need to be aligned across the country. Right. But the way you do that work has to be specific to where you live and work. And so I think when King says unite, for my part, that means unite around these broad outcomes the humane treatment of human beings in the United States of America, because that's where we live. Once we figure that out, we can work on all these other things, right? And there might be a faction of us who are taking what we're learning from here and the successes we have and exporting them to other places, Africa, Europe, Asia, where injustice and inequality exists because of the virus of white patriarchal hegemony Mm. that was exported through colonialism, right? Racism is a is a health mental health issue. It's a pathology, mm-hmm. right? So we have to understand that, and then we have to unite around these broad goals, such as the humane treatment of human beings, right? Many other things, but let's agree to the things that we all can agree to, right? And then what we do is keep relevant issues in the fore, right? And and by that it means our differences are small compared to these goals. Right. If we want people to be treated humanely, then we have to understand the humanity of the people that we're working with in order to model that for the people who don't see us as human beings, Mm. which means you have to hear us. You have to see us. And in turn, we have to hear you and see you. And in some cases, that could be the most difficult thing because I might be speaking out of my pain that is very present right now. It's Mm -hmm. not below the surface. I'm wearing it on my sleeve all the time. Yeah. Right. To be black and conscious in America is to be always angry. And yet we still have to go to work and smile. We still have to put our mask on. We wear the mask that grins and lies, hides our tears and shades our eyes, right? Paul Lawrence Dunbar wrote that years ago. And yet it's still relevant today, right? And so when we say something in community that hurts the feelings of someone who is not us and does not have our experience, they need to keep that in the proper perspective and hear it hmm. in order to understand 
why we're doing what we're doing. Because why they're doing what they're doing, white America, who are choosing to ally, is not going to be the same reason that we're doing what we're doing. Right. It can't be because the experiences are different. That doesn't mean we can't work toward the same outcomes, right? Um, and by the same token, though, as part of building that trust to do that work, we have to be open to hearing their experiences. Issues around like white guilt, all of that white stuff. fragility, all of that stuff. Because how do you build community in a, in a one sided way? Either way, one sided to the person of color or that benefits the person of color, or one sided that benefits the European American. Because whiteness is, is that pathology, right? So we have to build community that keeps the relevant issues to the fore through open conversation and understanding, building that trust, right? So unite, keep relevant issues to the fore, and we have to control our economic resources, right? That's politicians, that's corporations, that's anything and everything that does not support us, we cannot support it. And I say this as an avid Amazon user, <laughs> A true statement. Right? Yeah. But I'm trying to figure out, I mean, that that's a conflict for me. Yeah. That's a conflict for me. We need to use the FUBU mentality. We, we have to, right? Um, but in the corporatocracy we live in, there is really no corporation that it has its hands clean. That can do things at the scale that an Amazon does or that an Apple does, or that a Kroger does, or a Wendy's, or a Burger King, right? So what we have to do then is leverage the resources that we are um, exchanging, the monies we are giving to these corporations for those services, and, and have a different kind of conversation with them, right? Yes, I am an Amazon shopper, mm -hmm. and so are these million other people, and we will continue to do business with Amazon if Amazon does this. Hmm. And we have a timeline. And if those changes aren't made, then we have a series of, of days, weeks, however long, where we do not shop at Amazon. And then figure out how much Jeff Bezos makes in that time. Mm. Right? If he does not support his workers, we won't continue en masse. We don't need critical mass. We only need about three and a half percent of people who shop at Amazon to make that commitment. Right. But these things have if we unite and keep those relevant issues to the fore, then it makes it easier to organize our resources to have the impact that needs to be had in order to shift the conversation and the practices. Because how long does the black dollar stay in the black community? Six seconds. Yeah. Um, and then we need to build and sustain infrastructure and institutions that support our goals. For black America, we need our own infrastructure. We need our own institutions. HBCUs? We need HBCUs, but we also need to ensure that K-12 and HBCUs, as an example, are supported with black dollars so we don't have to um, water down the way we educate our students and ourselves in order to, to appease white philanthropy, right? Yeah, because no do you think do you think that the quality of and I'm I'm not going to talk about HBCUs, but do you think the quality in let's say like a charter school, which is and and we're only really speaking about what we see in our community, mm -hmm. right? So I can't speak to you know in Atlanta charter schools that are doing you know well, 
what I can speak to is Columbus, Ohio. Like, do we see equity in those predominantly black charter schools? Well, the question is, in general, not just predominantly black charter schools, but the the main educational institutions mm. in our community, right? The question is, why? What's the goal of education? Why are we educating? And to what end are we educating these students, right? Because poor white students and black students all are getting the same shit end of the stick, yeah. right? The difference is it negatively impacts black students disproportionately because of all these other things. Right. Right. So in the case of HBCUs, HBCUs graduate more black doctors. They graduate more black uh, educators. They graduate more black um, seminarians than any other institutions. The question is, how do that's what I say, educators. Oh, you did. Okay, yeah, sorry. that's the question is how do we strengthen these institutions so they offer more uh, uh, degrees, more majors, yeah. so they are more appealing to more students of color. I could not go to an HBCU because they didn't have the major that I was inter- interested in. Right. But my ultimate goal, honestly, is to retire to to teach at an HBCU because I want to help build that legacy. Right. Right. And some people will say that was a cop out. You could have studied this. You could have studied that. No, I studied what I wanted to study because I knew where I wanted to go. Right. And you have to then say, okay, I realize I didn't go to an HBCU even though I wanted to because of this. How do I help these institutions become stronger? So philanthropy is important for for black folks. But black philanthropy. Yeah. And it exists. But we have to, again, focus those resources. Right. And, And with a focus of our resources, we can build and sustain our own institutions. And then this is where we get to how we got there in the first place to this conversation, sustain that engagement, right? So we can't do this in the, in the um, context of an Amazon boycott, as an example, for a week and think things are going to change. Or a one day. Or one day yeah. and think things are going to change, right? We can't take the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd and say for may and early june oh we're all on it but come august it's done right yeah this is a multi-year level engagement because it took 400 years for us to get here it's going to take almost that much time to fix it so that's why education is important that's why organization is important that's why sustained engagement is important because this is a long haul So, you know, for those of you that don't know, Mark and I um, are the proud parents of an 11-year-old and an 18-year-old. How do, and I mean, I think that the plan that you just kind of talked about, I think that is something that we can adapt for younger folk. But where is their role in all of this? And particularly... um, you know how I've had a, a couple white folks reach out to me today and say, like, I'm going to make sure that this is something that I share with my kids. But how do we how do we hold how do we help our kids through this? Number one. And then how do we how do we help our white um, comrades raise their kids to be in this fight? So we help our kids by being honest with them. Like our kids have seen us go through depression. Our kids have seen us um, be engaged and invigorated. They've seen us at our highs and lows through this whole process. Yeah. And in seeing that, 
we've had conversations with them like this hurts this does not feel good i don't know what we're going to do yeah and that gives them a perspective that it doesn't have to be okay and you cannot be okay but that doesn't mean you quit right they also have seen us work in community through our jobs and through our literal community network connections to do what we can to make the world a better place. So they have roadmaps, right? And they have a sense of what that should look like when they become adults. For those who would be allies who are not people of color, you have to be honest about American history with your children. You don't get to just be a parent Mm -hmm. and say, you don't see color, you should treat everybody the same. Right. Of course, you should treat everybody the same. And of course, you should see color. Of course, you should see (laughs) color because our our ethnic variations, our ethnic differences is what makes America great in concept, in theory. But because we don't practice that is why America has never yet been great. Right. So teach your kids about slavery. We our kids have been around information around slavery since they were born. It's not about waiting until the right age right. to talk about you. Know no, I mean, I remember we showed Amira Amistad at a very early age. Yeah. But Layla I too. mean, they they couldn't help but know because of who their parents, who their family, right. who their families are. Um, and I think, too, you know, I would love for white America to kind of know not all black folks are the same. So like Mark and I, while yes, our skin shades are pretty, pretty similar, we had complete different lives and upbringings. Mark grew up Protestant. I grew up Catholic. Catholic girl. We had totally different experiences. I went to private school. Mark went to public school. (laughs) You were raised to be, you know, a creative, um, intellectual academician like you were that was like your you were born for goodness sake on a college campus i mean let's be real and you were raised to be blue collar blue collar you, get up, you go to your job you, you go make, home, an, honest you make living, an honest living you know you union. get a state job you mm-hmm. yeah i mean union um all those things you make sure that you have a clean home you make sure you have food for your guests and and I think through all of that, you know, I want white America to know we know that y'all are different. You mm-hmm. know, um, I went to school in Appalachia and it's really different than where I grew up in Columbus. So um, I think that's something that I want white folks to make sure that they're educating their kids about this stuff, too. And make sure our kids know that, you know, because it drives me crazy when I hear younger um, white folks and they're like, yeah, girl, because, you know, and they think they are. I mean, I hear it from my my daughter's friends. They think they are really doing the most. And that is just not how we all are. So I would love for folks to really shatter some of those stereotypes. It's like when you get into Uber and the driver and just the puts driver on chains, one, yeah, <laughs> urban no. radio. I mean, right? we live in a really, I, what I like a lot about the community that Mark and I live in is that 
it's it's very diverse. And when I say diverse, I mean we've got every every continent represented on our street. Literally. Literally. And when you jump into a Uber, you know, you might have someone who's from who's from the continent, right? You might have someone who's from Mali or Senegal and they're jamming to some music from Senegal or Mali. As soon as they see that you're African-American, they put on some trap music. I don't want that. I want to hear what you were hearing. (laughs) So, I mean, I I know we just kind of went off on a little tangent or I did. But 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 the, the idea of allyship means that there has to be a shared understanding of facts. Yeah. Right? We don't always have to agree on process. That's a conversation. But we have to agree on the context in which we're doing the work. Right? And if white America, generally speaking, refuses to agree on the history that black America has lived then there can never be any real partnership, right? Because the truth of it is not just the experience. The truth of it is what America was founded on, right? Bars. Whatever. (laughs) Three original sins. Slavery, the genocide first of First Nation peoples, then slavery, and the disenfranchisement of poor white men and white women. Those things are still happening. None of that has changed. Right. America's wealth was built on the backs of poor people, of killing Mm -hmm. people and of free labor, forced labor from people. Period. Point blank. That is still the case. Right. So in that context, we teach our children what it means to be in America, what it means to be in America and American means that we have to wrestle with that legacy. Period. If we do that and we do the work in that context, I think we can move forward. But until we agree on those three things and then realize that even though poor white men and white women were disenfranchised, when white women got the vote in 1919, black women didn't, even though they worked for suffrage too, Ida B. Wells. Right? And it wasn't until 1965 that black people who got the right to vote during Reconstruction but couldn't legally still vote due to all other kinds of things when the South won the Civil War in the late 19th century. Check your history. After Reconstruction, the South was right back where it was. I mean, we can talk about right? the, the wage gap now. Uh, well, but that's what I'm saying. These practices <laughs> persist. They just evolved. Yeah. And they looked differently for the various time periods that they found themselves in but it all goes back to that i would say you know cops killing black folks um is a different way of lynching it's not a different way i mean it's It's a different it's lynching and lynching it it looks different (laughs) because they have badges now because they have badges and they're not tying you from a tree (laughs) right they're just putting their knee in your neck yeah and making sure you can't breathe right or Or just shooting you you know point blank range um as we kind of move towards the end of, of this um, episode, what are you what are you looking forward to in the weeks ahead? What do you think um, what would you like to see in the weeks moving ahead? Honestly, I'm not at a place personally where I'm looking forward to anything in the weeks ahead. Okay. I'm not there yet. Yeah. Um, 
in general, what keeps me hopeful is that on some level or another, these events have to catalyze action. I'm hopeful that the research that I've read and come across says that we don't need everybody in America to engage, but we do need less than 4%, 3.5%. That's about 11, 12 million people. I would hope that in this moment, there are at least 12 million people, black, white, purple, green, or blue, who are willing to come together and do something. What concerns me is that the way America works, I don't think we can build an institution to do that work. I think we need to disaggregate the work and build several, many, hundreds, if not thousands of institutions that do that work, that are connected to these common goals, right? But that infrastructure building, again, takes time. But I'm hopeful that in this period, our generation, Gen X, and the generations that have come after us can commit now to doing this work that, frankly, our parents um, slept on because they thought they had won. Did they sleep on it, though, Mark? Yeah, I've had I've had many elders come up to me and apologize because they thought they had won. With the Voting Rights yeah, Act, with the Civil Rights Act. I mean, Act, they were with, like, I'm gonna, I'm moving my family out to the burbs. Right? I'm going to pay for My whole family school. did that. And, and as a result, there was a generation or two that was not prepared. Because think about it. When that happened, less than 10 years later, the crack epidemic happened. And it hit urban America with like, like just a bag full of bricks, right? And the brain drain had already happened. And so the black elite were not there for our communities the way we would have been in the 60s and the 50s. And because we had ascribed to this new ideal of middle class, Mm -hmm. of the middle class, we let them rot. We being black America. Yeah. Right. That was not cool. We kind of came back together in the 90s. There was a lot more unity. You saw it in the arts. Right. You saw it in a lot of things. And then we got Barack Obama and we thought we had won again. We got 20 years later. We got complacent. Right. So that's why sustained engagement is important. Yeah. I mean, that that's exactly kind of what I'm thinking about all of this. Um, As we end today, where can folks catch you? Catch me on the web. Mark Lomax. I I dot com. You can catch our drum versations live stream on YouTube Fridays from noon to one CFG multimedia YouTube or just Google Mark Lomax. Are you on social media? I'm on social media. Sock Meg. <laughs> Twitter, Mark Lomax. I, I, um, I don't know what my IG is, but if you look up Mark Lomax, is there. <laughs> we'll have that for you on our next episode. Well, <laughs> thank you all for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed Drumversations, the podcast. I'm signing off. Ruth Lomax. And I'm Mark Lomax. Peace out, homies. Peace out.